The third to the last book of the Bible is 3rd John. We read this morning the third epistle of John. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, But Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. This far we read the word of God. This morning I call your attention to verses 3 and 4 of this short epistle. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. Even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, if you were to analyze and evaluate yourself honestly, what answer would you give to this question? What role does truth play in your life? Every one of us here has been for some time a member of a Protestant Reformed congregation. The children have been schooled and catechized. They have truth, at least in their head. And the adults, too, probably having been catechized and raised in the Reformed faith, know truth. So that's not the question. The question is not merely, do you know, or how well do you know truth, but what role does it play in your life? Does it form your life? Does it make you a different person? Is it evident to others around that you are a brother or a sister who loves, who walks in truth? The question the epistle forces on us. It does so by referring to three men, this truth being the fundamental concept, three men in the church are evaluated in their relation to truth. First is Gaius, who both walks in truth, as verses 3 and 4 state, and then verses 5 through 8 tell us he was a fellow helper to truth. In some, briefly, that means he supported the ministry of the gospel and the work of missions to the best of his ability. He loved truth. 
towards the end of the epistle, we meet a man named Demetrius who hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Here's a man who both loved truth and truth said something of him. Truth bore witness that he was a child of God, a good man. Good, of course, not by nature, but good by grace. And then there's a third man, verses 9 and 10, Diotrephes. He knew truth. Apparently, Diotrephes was an influential man in the church. Was he an elder of this congregation? Was he the minister? We're not told. Maybe he was just a prominent layman. But he was influential. He called some shots. Notice what the scriptures say about him. Not only does he love to have the preeminence, he's a proud man, but he won't receive the apostle John. He won't receive those brothers who go about preaching truth, doesn't support the ministry of the gospel and missions as Gaius did. And if you would support those causes, he forbids you to do it and cast you out of the church. Here is a man who does not love truth. And so the epistle, in stark contrast, presents on the one hand a man who hates truth and two who love it and forces the question on us. Do you love truth? It isn't the fact that you're a member of a congregation that allows you to answer the question yes. Diotrephes was a member of a congregation. Do you show that you love truth? The theme then of the short epistle can be summed this way. Three churchmen in relation to truth. The first man, and he of whom our text speaks, is Gaius, of whom we know rather little. There are other men named Gaius in the New Testament, but whether this is the same as found anywhere else, we don't know. What we do know is that John loved Gaius dearly, as often as he call, as often as John uses the word truth in the epistle, so often does he call Gaius dearly beloved or well beloved. He loves this man. The text, in speaking of John's children walking in truth suggests that Gaius is a spiritual child of John, that he may have come to faith through the ministry of John, and if not come to faith, then certainly has grown in faith through the ministry of John. But that's as much as we know about Gaius. It seems also that Gaius is somehow connected with the same congregation in which Diotrephes is an influential member. And that therefore the two men are greatly opposed one to another. And people can see this division. It isn't that you may say if you're in this congregation. No I'm not of Diotrephes. I am of Gaius. You may be of Gaius. But you may look to Gaius as a godly man. Who acts quite different from Diotrephes. And yet because of Diotrephes prominence and influence. It seems that the godliness of Gaius was minimized. People weren't looking at Gaius and saying, no, this man is setting the pattern. They were looking at Diotrephes and saying, if I don't do it his way, I'm in trouble. I'd better do it his way. And the Apostle John is writing to Gaius saying, it doesn't really matter now what people think of you. God sees that you are walking in truth. And so there's an application to a congregation that lives in the last days before our Lord returns. And to young people who may live one day in churches and certainly in a nation in which godliness, ungodliness is promoted more and more and godliness is oppressed. And here's the, here's the encouragement. God sees that you are walking in truth. Keep it up. You might think you have no influence on others. Others aren't living the same way. Don't worry about that right now. Do what God would have you do. And that's the word that the apostle speaks to this Gaius now in our text. The church has many men in it. Not all love truth. Gaius did. He walked in truth. That's therefore the theme of the sermon. Gaius 
walking in truth. Notice Gaius' godly walk, first of all, the brother's testimony, secondly, and John's great joy, finally. The key concept in the entire epistle is truth. And so we have to spend some time this morning asking what truth is and what it means in their text. And if in the future, the Lord willing, I bring to you other sermons from this epistle, then we'll see how the four things we say this morning about truth isn't all there is to say about it in the epistle. The apostle keeps building on the concept, but for the purposes of our text, four things about truth. Number one, truth is that which God reveals to us. I cannot know truth unless God tells me. Therefore, it's found in Scripture, isn't it? It's found in Jesus Christ. And why is this point worth making? Well, first of all, because today we live in a day and age where we think truth is my opinion. And people go around telling their opinion and saying, well, I spoke the truth. Guess what? It might be you didn't lie in expressing your opinion, but your opinion, my opinion, is not the truth. God, God's revelation, and God's word is the truth. And there's a second reason why we need to underscore that. And that is that if my opinion is truth, and my opinion today is different from my opinion next week, you're going to notice that for me, truth keeps changing. And that characterizes the world in which we live too. Truth is relative. Truth is what you want it to be. Truth can change from one day to another. Truth can be for you one thing and for me another. No, beloved, as we stand before this epistle and take the example of Gaius to heart, we must see that truth is unchanging because it's what God makes known to us in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. That first, the unchanging, objective revelation of God. In the second place, if you would say, but now put some flesh on that, what is truth? Then the answer is going to be given in the form of doctrinal propositions, doctrinal statements, the Apostles' Creed. And so what is truth? At the very heart of truth is two things. God, one only true God, exists, who has created us, who has recreated us in Christ, to whom we give answer, and therefore in whose sight we must walk. That's a truth. That truth men deny today. When truth is my opinion or yours, it doesn't matter if there is a God. If there be such a thing as God, it doesn't matter what that God thinks. But when truth is what God revealed, then this does matter. There is a God to whom we give answer. And the second aspect of the content of truth is that God reveals himself now by sending Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, into our flesh. This is for you, nothing new, but now I'm getting at the very heart of the doctrinal issue in the epistles of John. The question is, who is Jesus Christ? And in today's day and age, you hear many people saying, well, Jesus, he was a man, a good man, an exemplary man. He is not divine. He maybe has an honorary title of being called the Son of God, but he's not divine. In John's day, the issue was exactly the opposite. People were ready to say that Jesus was God, but they would deny that he was truly man. If you read the first epistle of John, the first chapter, that which we have seen and we have heard and we have touched, our hands have handled him. John begins the epistle by saying this Jesus was truly human. We could perceive him with our five senses. Then in the second epistle, verse 7, many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come 
in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so that's at the heart of this third epistle too, even though John doesn't state it. Truth is that Jesus Christ is God, truly come in the flesh. Now, sinner, isn't this what you want to hear? Isn't this the truth you don't ever want compromised? Because this says how you and I, having sinned in the soul, and that sin having affected our body, can now be redeemed and renewed and restored to covenant fellowship with God again in body and in soul. Jesus Christ took our body and soul upon himself and went to the death of the cross. In fact, the cross was necessary as a death of a just man in behalf of unjust men and women in order to reconcile us to God. Oh, we love this truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We put some content on truth now. In the third place, truth is antithetical. It opposes the lie. The only lie that the world knows today and society speaks of is the lie of saying that truth is absolute. The lie of saying that you have truth, and if you have truth, those who deny the truth you have don't have truth. To the world, that's the lie. But that's not the way the apostle's presenting it. Truth is antithetical, which is to say that it opposes every perversion, every distortion, and every denial of it. And there were those in John's day especially what was happening in John's day, is that there were people who had been pagans. They'd been given over to pagan philosophy. Now the gospel has come, and they've heard the Christian faith, and they're trying, instead of completely renouncing their pagan ways for Christianity, they're trying to find a way they can join both of them. And call themselves Christians. And John is saying as it were. In the scriptures. The the spirit through this. You can't do that. When you walk in truth. You have clearly understood what truth is. And what opposes it. And you separated yourselves from it. This brings me back to the doctrinal issue. Jesus Christ is God. But he's not come in the flesh. Why would some Christians say that? And the answer is, because they're trying to mix their Gnostic, pagan philosophies with Christianity. Jesus Christ only appeared to be a man, they say, because all, all material things, including the body, are evil. You want to escape from matter. You want to... You want to get, rise up above all things material. You want to be spiritual in that sense. And if Jesus Christ is the son of God, he would never have taken on himself a body which is evil. And therefore these Gnostics are redefining Christianity. Truth opposes that. Truth cannot mingle with lie any more than light. With darkness. And I'll explain how that applies to us. In just a moment. And the fourth thing to say about truth in our text. Is that it's a sphere. In which one walks. Or lives. As thou walkest. In the truth. It would be one thing if the apostle were to say. You are walking according to truth. That would be appropriate. Wouldn't be wrong at all. But that's not what he says here. He makes it even more graphic. You are walking in truth. You are walking in a bubble. In an area called truth. I want to illustrate what he means here. By putting you in your mind. And me with you. Into a dark forest. In the middle of the night. When there aren't 
moon and stars and city lights reflecting off clouds and street lights to guide your way. Whether it's a dark forest or a, an open field, you can't see where you're going. You can put one foot in front of the next, but are you about to fall into a gopher hole, a, a muskrat hole? Are you about to step on a skunk? You don't know. Over in the distance, you see light. And you say to yourself, I have to get over to where there's light. If I do that, I can walk. If that light goes with me, if I'm walking the light shining on me, I can see my way. And so you do that. Now that, in analogy, you and I, by nature, are born in the darkness of sin and unbelief. Darkness fills our minds and hearts. All that's wicked and opposed to truth is what comes naturally to us when Gaius walked in truth. It wasn't he now who said, I see some light, I'd better go to it. It was God who says, I'm going to put you in light. And that's where you walk. That's where you live. That's where you will be safe. That is where you will have fellowship with your God and Savior. A sphere in which one walks. Speaking of our Savior. Who? More than he perfectly walked in truth. And that's why he is not only our great example of how so to live, but the power and the possibility. But the text is about Gaius walking in truth. And so let's do justice to that point. Gaius is living in this sphere of truth. He's living in light of the revelation of God. It's not just a matter, the text, of saying he didn't lie. He was always a man who would be truthful. It's not just that. All that he thought and said and did was governed by this great light of truth, which shone on him this revelation of God, which was not just in his head, but in his heart. He loved the truth in his heart. The lies of the world. And even the lies of the world as they came into the church, he despised, he rejected. The word of God affected and directed how he would live. The concrete illustration of this is found in verses 5 through 8, a future sermon, the Lord willing. But again, Gaius took care of men who preached the gospel, especially traveling missionaries. He fed them, he lodged them. He housed them. He supported them. They were doing a service to the church that he loved. And Gaius is not the minister. He is not the one called to preach. But he can support the preaching of the gospel. So clearly does he walk in truth that verse 2 said, Your soul prospereth. And then this is a reason why John says, verse 3, why he rejoices greatly. Your soul prospereth. I want to draw a connection between walking in truth and a prosperous soul. A prosperous soul is one that advances well on its journey. That's the idea of the Greek word translated prosper. And it reminds us that this walk in truth is a walk that has its origin in our regeneration and has heaven as our goal and destination. And he who walks in truth and in the light of truth is one step at a time, one day at a time, progressing closer and closer to heaven. That's a prosperous soul. I made a journey this morning. It wasn't a very long journey. I got on Cottonwood. I got on Baldwin. I got on the Ford Freeway. I got on Wilson Avenue. I got on Lake Michigan Drive. And I came here. In the time I expected it would take me, I arrived at my destination. The journey was prospered. But let's say I had a flat tire before I got out of Jenison. Let's say there was an accident on the freeway that totally shut down the freeway. And so I was sitting in traffic going nowhere. That's not a prosperous journey. You might be headed in the right direction, but you're not 
going anywhere. Spiritually, that's what happens to the child of God who says, oh yes, I've been saved by Jesus Christ. Oh yes, I'm going to heaven, but who does not walk in truth. I'm going to take a detour. I'm going to go see what this sin does and how what joys it will give me in life. I'm going to go look into that philosophy. I'm going to consider that idea that is contrary to scripture. But I'm going to say to myself, maybe people are right who say that the scriptures aren't the word of God. They aren't inspired. That there's, there's really a conspiracy going on to try to convince me that only these 66 books are the word of God. And I'm going to go try to find out what else out there is being rejected. And I might decide that that's truth. You see, when you do that, we do that. Then our soul is not prospering. When I listen to the world's music, when I adopt the world's philosophies, the world's values, the world's mentalities, the world's goals, my soul is not making good progress in its journey toward heaven. Gaius' soul prospers and yours and mine will inasmuch as the word of God directs our life. Are you walking in truth? It doesn't take grace to know truth. To be clear, when the child of God knows truth, that is God's grace. I don't deny that. But there are unbelievers who know it in their head. It didn't take grace to know it intellectually. It just takes a, a capacity to understand. But it takes grace to love it. And walk in it. And that brings me then to ask the question. And I've already pointed you to the answer. What explains a prospering soul? What explains a walk in truth? And the answer is grace. And then the second answer is grace. Grace for us. And grace in us. Because we are sinners, dead in sin, born and conceived in sin. Because Adam's sin and Eve's sin had as this effect that the whole human race is brought into the darkness of sin and unbelief. Only the grace of God. Appointing us from all eternity to life in Jesus Christ. Determining that we, those sinners, will have a place in heaven. Only the grace of God, sending Jesus Christ, therefore, into our flesh and to the death of the cross and causing him to rise again the third day. Only the grace of God regenerating us, that's grace in us, so that now we begin to know and love and that truth forms and affects our whole life. Only the grace of God to us and in us explains why a sinner walks in truth. Do you walk in truth? Is that how truth forms and shapes your life? To rephrase the question. Do you recognize the grace God has shown you? Do you love it? Is it above all things most precious to you? John heard that Gaius was walking in truth. The brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. These brethren apparently, these traveling missionaries who went forth and came to Gaius' house and come back now to John and say, you know, as we went on our journey, we didn't always know where we would sleep, where we would eat. The Lord, when he was on earth, told his Servants who went forth not to worry about that. That Jehovah God in his providence would provide for their needs. But these brethren came and say we found that to be true. And particularly the Lord raised up a man named Gaius. 
And he was to us such a support and an encouragement. Not only a support of our financial needs, we had a place to sleep, we had a place to eat, but his godliness was an incentive to us to preach the gospel to others. The brothers come and testify of the truth that is in Gaius. And that's how John knows. There's something significant here. That is that the godliness of Gaius, though it might seem because of a diatrophy's presence, that it was having no real impact or effect on others, did in fact have an effect and impact on others. Do not ever say that it is vain to live a godly life because nobody else is doing it. Or with regard to this particular sin, it is not worth your time to fight against it because everybody else is living in it. In fact, that's not true. And not only is that not true, but you will, by your godliness, be an encouragement to others. So was Gaius with regard to these brethren. Now they come back to John and they say to John, this Gaius is walking in truth. I don't want to drive home a practical point. Person A, the brethren, came to person B, John. And we're talking about person C, Gaius, not present. And this is something that happens in our life every day. You and I, you and somebody else, you and your spouse, you and your children, Talk about the teacher, the student at school, the person in the workplace who works next to you, and what do we say? You should hear what so-and-so did. You'll never believe how stupid they were today. But if they are a brother or a sister in Christ... This is what we must say about them. I see how the Spirit of God in Christ has renewed them. I see how that person is to me an encouragement in my godliness. Is that the way we talk about one another? When we see their weaknesses, and we will, that doesn't have to be the first thing we talk about in their absence. When we see their sins, and we will, that's the sort of thing we may go to them to discuss in a brotherly way face to face. But how about ensuring that when we talk about brothers or sisters, others in the church and covenant, when they're not present, that we talk about them in this light. How has the grace of God changed their life? How is it evident that those sinners, they are striving to walk according to truth? How are they an encouragement to me? That is what the brothers are saying to John. That means that they themselves were showing that they were walking in truth. Truth affected their life to that degree. And part of truth is remembering that God has given each of us not only to be alone and not to be preeminent, but has given us brothers or sisters who are all on the same pathway toward heaven. That's an amazing characteristic or point to be made from noting the brothers' testimony. Why would the Holy Spirit include this, one wonders. John could simply say, I rejoice to know that you're walking in truth. But he gives credit to the brothers who told them. And in part it's to draw Gaius' attention to the fact that others are speaking in a godly way of him. 
others are noting the effects and influence of godliness in him. It's also a reason why John can say to him, I'm going to tell you why I rejoice to know that you're walking in truth. It's because I was just reminded of it today. But then there's another practical lesson that comes out for us here too. Earlier it was person A who is speaking to person B about person C not present. Now, person B gets on the phone with person C and says, do you know what I just heard about you? Well, no, what? Who from? Was it flattering? Oh, was it from that person? They're probably cutting me down. It's all they ever do. Nope. The reason I'm going to tell you what I just heard about you is because it will encourage you. If it were some juicy tidbit of gossip, I'd keep it to myself because I don't have any business spreading it, let alone must I go to you about whom it regards. That won't promote fellowship in the body of Jesus Christ. That won't promote us all walking together in truth. But no, I'm going to tell you what I just heard. Because the person I heard it from, from was not flattering. And you'll be encouraged. You are walking in truth. So congregation. It is our calling to build up one another in love and godliness and in good works. Is this one way in which we're working to do it? Not only by speaking truth about the brother or sister in his or her absence, but also when I tell him or her what I've heard about him by doing so with a goal to his encouragement in godliness. Having set forth the brother's testimony, it's come in the third place to John's great joy. I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Notice two ways in which verse 4 is not just a repetition, but an advance in thought over verse 3. In the first place, verse 3 was specifically about Gaius. I rejoice greatly. I heard that thou walkest in truth. Verse 4 sets forth a general principle. If it's Gaius or if it is anybody else, I will still rejoice to hear that my children walk in truth. In the second place, verse 3 said, I rejoiced greatly. And you might say, good. You were happy to hear that somebody else walked in truth. Is this one of your 20 highest joys? Does this rank number 18 of 20? No, says the apostle. I have no greater joy. This is number one. And so, just as I earlier spent some time developing the concept truth, I'm going to spend a little less time, but a concerted amount of time explaining what joy is. I have no greater joy. What is that? And here it is in essence. And then I'll have three ways to flesh that out. Joy is the activity of the regenerated child of God. It's a heart, a soul activity of the regenerated child of God in which he, you, I delight in the Lord's work of accomplishing the Lord's will of saving the Lord's people. Do you understand then, first of all, to flesh this out? It's all about what the Lord is doing. True Christian joy is all about what Jesus Christ, at the right hand of God, is doing. How different, young people, from... Joy being, I get to go somewhere with my friends today. Joy being, I made the basketball team. Joy being, I got a brand new truck. 
and not just with application to the young people, how different adults from joy being a matter of the outward circumstances of our earthly life. That's not true Christian joy. What is the Lord doing? That gives joy. Because he's doing the best thing he could possibly do. He's saving a church. He's redeeming sinners. He's sanctifying us progressively. That's joy. In the second place, the joy that John has in true Christian joy regards what the Lord is doing for others. It's not, first of all, me. It's not all about me. I have no greater joy than to hear that they, my children, walk in truth. So even if I'm sad, there are reasons why any one of us at different times in life might be very sad. We don't have to say, but I have no joy. All joy is gone. It it might be we are in such depths we feel that way. I can understand that. But when we remember what the Lord is doing in saving his church, we can say, oh no, there's a ray of hope yet. I don't feel it so strongly right now, but there's a ray of hope. The Lord is in control. And the third place to flesh out true joy Although I emphasize it's what the Lord is doing for others. It's them, not me. Yet the apostle does get personal, doesn't he? I have no greater joy than to hear that. My children. And he means those to whom I'm very close in the body of Christ. Those whom I've taught. In other words, although it's about them, not me, what an amazing thing and what a privilege to see that the Lord used me, weak, sinful beings, with a view to the spiritual growth of others in the church. That gives me joy. This then is the joy that the parent has as he trains his own children and sees them come to know and love Jesus Christ as their Savior This is the joy that the elders and the pastors and the deacons have as they labor with the people of God and see those people of God growing in grace and godliness. But this is also the joy that any member of the congregation can have as you see a brother or sister in need and address their need and in addressing their need, bring them the word of God and see that word comforting their hearts. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Is that your joy? Here too there are lessons for us. The first comes to the young people again. My dad seldom cried. But when I remember him crying, my sins were the reason for it. You want to see your parents cry? You want to see the greatest grief you could inflict on them? Tell them their Christ means nothing to you. Tell them their way of living in accordance with the law of God is silly. And there are parents who have that grief. To them, the grief is real, intense. Just remember this. The Lord has not stopped saving his church. He has not stopped using you with a view to the encouragement and edification and upbuilding of others. So though your grief is real and intense, keep serving him. He is the one who can turn your grief into joy. And then... As you serve in the church, you realize 
if in a particular way, a flesh and blood child, you don't have this joy. He has still given you the joys of seeing that the ascended Lord uses you for the salvation of his church. But then the application next is this. You and I are prone to dismiss this as the greatest joy. I have no greater joy. You and I are prone to say, what kind of a joy is that ultimately? There are so many other things I want in life, so many other things I desire. And the Lord would have us see that the faithful exercise of our place in the body of Christ by walking in truth is the greatest joy. Why? Because in that way, I have fellowship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not walking merely in truth or according to truth, but we're walking with truth. Didn't Noah, didn't Enoch, they walked with God. And so are we. And in that way, his greatest joy. Satan works to rob us of that joy. Because sin still indwells us and affects us, because we listen to the world's philosophies, we're prone to despise that joy. But it's joy God has given us in Christ that we must count precious. And therefore we come here today. Not just to hear this text. Sometime we'll hear other texts. We always hear different texts. But we come here to share that joy. And to manifest that joy with each other. And now look at the text from one more perspective. Who is the I? I rejoiced greatly. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Who is the I? And you say, well, that's John. You say that's John as representative of a pastor, of an office bearer, of a parent. And I say that's true. But is it not also our heavenly father, Jehovah God? Does he not say the same thing? I, this is the gospel to you and me this morning. Jehovah in Jesus Christ saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Indeed, this is why he loved us from eternity. This is why he created us in Jesus Christ. He did not do so only so that at the end of the ages we would find ourselves in heaven as opposed to others who didn't. But he did so so that in this life we would show ourselves different, distinct, antithetical in, the, in that in the service of having fellowship with him in which fellowship he delights. Joy is not just a human emotion. There is a true joy that characterizes Jehovah God too. And you want a Bible passage that kind of that, that illustrates and underscores that? You want a Bible passage that tells you and me that if we should choose to live apart from God, if we should choose to depart from his word, he will be grieved? Then go to Ephesians 4 verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit. Having set forth Ephesians 4, the doctrine of the old man and the doctrine of the new man, and given the calling to put aside the sins of the old man and to live out of the power of the new man, and having spelled out again the antithesis, that's the last word of the chapter, and then the apostle will go on in Ephesians still to set forth in two more chapters what the Christian life is positively. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. And the day you decide that there is greater joy for you in departing from the law of God and the word of God and living according to how you want and how the world says you ought to, that day, 
Jehovah God will say, I'm grieved. Not the kind of grief that can't do anything. Not the kind of grief like the parents' grief that can only pray and hope and cry. No, Jehovah's sovereign. In his grief, he will chastise. He will afflict. He will reprove, rebuke, admonish. He will use the means of other saints to that end. He will use other means beyond our control to that end. But if you're an elect, if you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, he will turn you or me. But so long as we walk apart from him, he's grieved. Not because of what we do, but rather on the basis of what he's done for us. And on the, uh, and the basis of his work in us, renewing us. He says, I am a father. Not just a God and a personal being. I'm a father. I delight in fellowship with my children. But there isn't any. When you walk. In darkness. Now may this be. The real incentive. For you and for me. To be like Gaius. To walk in truth. To avoid all darkness. And to keep our eyes fastened. On that bright light. Shining ahead of us. The glimmering hope. Of a day in which we live. With God in heaven forever. Walking. Only ever. Always in truth. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we cannot, but thou hast made us to. Amazing. And now may we not only walk in truth, but encourage one another in that light, in that regard. And may we find true happiness. And for those of our number, our brothers and sisters of Christ elsewhere, who have labored and labored and see their work spurned, whether that's parents with children, whether that's office bearers with erring members, whether that's pastors with members of the congregation who reject truth, give to each one of them the comfort of knowing that thy will is accomplished in the saving of thy church. For Jesus' sake, amen.